This is Leadership in Action, and I'm Casey Cheshire. Join me as we delve deep into the passions, expertise, and experiences of Boston area innovators. Sponsored by the Boston chapter of the Entrepreneurs' Organization, this is Leadership in Action. Recording to the cloud. Yes, that's right. That's what's happening. It's like the guy that announces everything they're doing as they're clicking it. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing. I'm recording to the cloud. But what am I recording? An amazing episode is about to happen here. I can't wait to get into this. I can't wait to dive in. The guest today, he's an entrepreneur, a human-centered leader, and a industry expert in the healthcare sector and in benefits and healthcare. And we are going to extract all of his knowledge on the show today. I'm excited to get into this because it is a wild world out there and it is constantly changing and the prices and the costs and everything. He is the founder and healthcare benefits consultant at AMR Benefits Management, Andrew Roberts. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Casey. Pleasure to be with you. Dude, I'm so glad you're here. It's a, it's a nice, uh, sunshiny Thursday. Here we are, a nice little podcast. The birds are chirping. And so I just want to, I want to pass you the baton and ask you to start the show the way we start every show. Smash this myth for us. What is a common misconception about being an entrepreneur and running a business? Well, I think a, a common misperception that a lot of entrepreneurs, CEOs, CFOs have is that health insurance costs going up every year should not be a foregone conclusion. Absolutely not. So, so they don't. I mean, I've, I've believed that. So you're saying it's not true. Like costs aren't always going to be going up in healthcare. You know what? We're, we're so conditioned to expect costs going up every year. That's kind of, uh, that's kind of the culture, right? Health, uh, health insurance renewal once a year, you know, how bad, how bad is it going to be this year? And, you know, what do we do to, to deal with that? But that's kind of a mindset. That's uh, a little bit of a fixed mindset, right? This is what it is. I don't know how to deal with it. It, you know, insurance companies and my broker are doing the best they can. And, uh, you know, I guess if we can get away with a 7% or an 8% increase, that's, you know, better than that 17% increase we got a few years ago, which was, you know, horrible. But right. so uh, everybody expects it. And, and the truth is, is that there's kind of uh, all kinds of opportunities to, to dig in on that and really get better results to the point where, hey, it's possible you could have a 20% decrease, but you got to be in the right box for that to happen. And, uh, and oftentimes like, you know, the majority of employers are just really in the wrong box. We got to get them over to a different box. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to dive into the, those opportunities, but before we do just kind of picking apart why this is the case, my I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm kind of a cynic sometimes. So immediately I thought, man, great marketing play by these healthcare folks to just condition us, condition the customer that, that rate creases always happen. And is it, is it a mix of that or is it just happening or where, where does this come from? Why, why are we brainwashed into thinking that it's a foregone conclusion? Well, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. Um, I mean, healthcare is about 20% of the U S economy, 20%. If you think about that, it's just an industry of magnitude and uh and really the system is rigged not in favor of the biggest well the two biggest payers are employers and the u.s government right and the u.s government because of their size and power uh really is able to to control the, the market in some respect right but the other biggest player the other 50 percent is our, our employers right they're writing all the checks they are writing all the checks which pay for healthcare and subsidizing quite a bit too of the healthcare system because uh you know some will argue that the uh public uh medicare medicaid you know pays so lean that uh you know if we want to get some fat profits well you know where we got to look outside the government and they go to employers so the problem is that employers are footing the bill and uh just don't have much control uh in, in the whole the whole system so um, it's, it's a rigged system, not in favor of employers. So what has to happen is employers really have to turn the tables and take control back. Um, and, and that's really to some extent what, what we're all about. Cool. Let's talk, man. Okay. It's rigged and they're out to get us. How, how, how do you combat that? Especially if you're not buying health for 10,000 employees, right? Fellow EO members, maybe we've got you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, even a hundred, but we're not 
a big buyer. How how do we how do we fight the good fight here? Well, I think you have to start by working with an advisor who really truly aligns with you know your 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 goals, your mission, your purpose, right? And if that's to control healthcare costs, control that part of you know healthcare costs are one of the largest business expenses for most employers, right? Top top three usually expense. Um, they need to align with a person whose objectives are to control that cost, right? And uh, I'm part of an organization uh, called the Health Rosetta. It's a national organization of advisors around the country. And uh, really the mission of the Health Rosetta is to help employers control healthcare costs, bring them innovative concepts, ideas, strategies, best practices, uh, more progressive best practices to, to um, help them, those employers take better care of their employees. And usually taking better care of your employees on the healthcare side translates to uh, lower costs. So I would say, first of all, you gotta, you gotta have the, you gotta be sitting in the room with the right person. Okay. Get the right people. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're dealing with a broker and your insurance broker, um, gets paid by, oh, name an insurance company, you know, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Cigna, Aetna, United, uh, locally here, uh, point 32 health, which was formerly Harvard Pilgrim. Tufts Health Plan, Always Healthcare. You know, they, these are good companies. They're important employers in our state, but uh, they have an objective. They have a model. And uh, oftentimes, again, that isn't necessarily 100% in the best interest of the employees and the employer, you know, and their money. Uh, so the problem is, is that brokers get paid, you know, by these insurance companies is, to, yeah. to, to sell their product. And uh, behind the scenes, most employers don't see this, but, you know, there are significant incentives to sell insurance company products, right? Which include commissions and bonuses and, and retention uh, bonuses. So the more you sell and the more you keep on the books, uh, the more money you make. So it's really uh, a situation where you work, you work for who pays you, right? So, right. When you change, you know, part, part of the whole dynamic is changing, um, you know, who, who pays you and things like that. So uh, I think that in the health Rosetta, um, Dave Chase, who created that particular organization and get mission driven organization, he called it the health Rosetta because he, he went through and said, well, what, and this is all a, like kind of a crowdsourced thing. He went around the country and, and, um, he was a successful entrepreneur before, um, starting this organization, worked at Microsoft, uh, and he had a couple of situations with people who were very close to him. He saw them get diagnosed with like disease, right? Cancer. Mm -hmm. And he watched how the system just treated them kind of as a bystander while he was doing nothing and said, this is like ridiculous. And look at the care that these people get. Number one, it's disjuncted, uh, yeah. and, and the cost and all that. And he, he wasn't even looking at it from the employer side, but as he dug in and learned more. Um, he created these kind of principles, which are the fundamentals of the health Rosetta. And we can, we can talk about those. And I think probably, you know, the biggest one, uh, is just transparency, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's a big hot word today, but in healthcare, transparency is so key. Where, where is the money going? Who's making the money, right? Who's getting paid? What, I know, what are we spending on this? What are we spending on that? And yeah, uh, tr so transparency is, is absolutely, you know, critical, uh, in anything that an employer is going to try to do to, to control, you know, this area of costs. Like if, if you don't know what your component costs are and who's getting paid, what to do, what, you know, how do you, how do you have any control of anything at all? And you know, what do you, they, what do they say, you know, what, what gets measured gets managed, right? So you right. Have, to have data, real data on your costs to, to be able to look at them. So. You know, first, what are some, what are some of these magical things? Like, like a good, let's say you got a good broker who's getting paid by you, maybe instead of the insurance company, what kind of tricks are up your sleeve or other people's sleeves to get those costs under control? Right. Well, it, it, pro, it, it's in general, it's a thing where you have, you know, lots of little silver bullets instead of one big silver. Okay. Bullet, right. It's creating, it's creating kind of the conditions for success. So if we go through kind of what, what those fundamental conditions are, yeah, you, you have to, you have to be, um, you do have to be self-funded, 
as an employer, right? And, and people get really scared when they hear, hear you know, self-funding. Well, self-funding can be very conservative. It can be very safe. And then oftentimes it actually can be safer and more conservative than being fully insured. So a lot of employers, when they're writing a check to the insurance company are doing it uh, on a fully insured basis, right? The broker says, here's what you pay every month. Here's your benefit summary. You pay us this, we give you that. It's all good. And you know, a year later, the rates go up 15%. So uh, when you're self-funded, it's more of a concept that you do have an, uh, an insurance component where you're, you know, kind of like a, like an umbrella protection. You know, you say, hey, we once we spend this amount of money, we don't spend anymore. So you have protection. But when you're when you're self-funded, it allows you as the employer to kind of pay for all the small expenses, right? The small things that the you know, it's like having insurance on your car for your wiper blades. Makes no sense, right? Uh, when you self-fund. Right. When you self-fund, you have this bigger umbrella and you're really going to cover the bigger things. And employers get to figure out, well, you know, what level of risk do I want to in incur based on the size of my business and my cash flow and stuff like that. So, you know, first of all, you got to be self-funded. And, and usually most employers with 50 or more employees on their medical plan, even sometimes a little below, can, can move into a self-funding environment pretty easily. So 50 more. So once they're, once they're kind of, in the mindset of exploring, all right, let's go self-funded. Let's, you know, and Can we you explain that more. I don't quite understand the self-funding. Yeah, absolutely. Thing. What is, so, what is that? So when you're, when you're dealing with an insurance company, they say to you, here's, you know, they take your data and they say, and they come back to you and they say, Hey, for a single, we're going to charge you this for a family. Right. We're going to charge you that. And you right. pay that every month. And yeah. at the end of the year, you've paid them that every month. And that's the, that's kind of the, the deal. So when you self-fund, uh, what you're doing is you're basically uh, breaking down what the insurance company, so to speak, is doing themselves. And and when you self-funded, you have really three three buckets that you, you have. You have your claims, which is when employees go to a doctor, or, you know, get a prescription drug, have a test. Those are your claims, right? So yeah. using providers. You have administration costs. So somebody, when you go self-funded, has to be your administrator. There's a whole ecosystem of vendors out there that can provide administrative services. And that's everything from creating an ID card, a benefit summary, customer service, steering employees to high quality. Right. right? So and that's the posters. The yeah. Yeah. The whole nine yards, your administrator. And then you have what's called stop loss insurance and stop loss insurance is the is the it's nothing really more than a really high deductible healthcare plan right it's a really high deductible so you know when you're when you're self-funded a lot of employers at 50 employees will have a deductible of forty thousand dollars for example so they'll say hey everything below forty thousand dollars uh mr or mrs employer you're responsible for all those costs for that member that person on your plan and anything above 40 will pick up right and okay. so that's called specific stop loss insurance. It, okay. it, and so large employers will have a 250000 or a $500,000 deductible. Little employers will pick a much smaller deductible and something that's palatable to them, you know, $40,000, $50,000. So you have protection on each individual on your plan, but then insurance companies that sell this type of um, specialized insurance also will sell you what's called an aggregate policy, which is an aggregate of all your little claims. So if you think about it, you have a company with 50 employees yep. and uh, Frank, he doesn't use much care, takes a prescription drug, goes to his doctor. He might only incur $2,000 in expenses. Right. Mary, she's similar to him. Maybe she had to have an MRI. Her knee was bothering her. So maybe she was $4,000 a year. But then, you know, we'll put poor Frank. You know, Frank, um, you know, his lower back has been killing him. He, he, he has a horrible uh, stenosis problem. He has an MRI, then has to have surgery. And then, unfortunately, the surgery doesn't work and he has to have another surgery, which is often yeah. the case with back pain. Months of PT. Yeah. yeah. And, and lo and behold, his costs add up to $65,000, right? Okay. All in. Well, if you That's have pretty a, good for back surgery too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's six hundred fifty thousand. What do you think? Oh uh, well, not in our world. I, I'd like to see that done for less, but we could. We I agree. Talk about that. So, so in the situation we're explaining, where the employer has a forty thousand dollar deductible for that person, 
right? The most that the employer is going to be at risk for is 40,000 on that individual. And then the additional um, risk, you know, that 15,000, 20,000, whatever it comes out to be, will be covered by the stop loss insurance company. And then, so you know what your risk is on any one individual. And then you'll also know that at the end of the year, what your risk in total was. And these terms are kind of created beforehand. So you can create the box. You can say, okay, uh, stop loss insurance with this level deductible cost me X. And these are all like, a, you know, a fraction of the total cost. Yeah. Um, because claims really is like your big cost. And, um, you know, your aggregate insurance is kind of what protects you like on the overall basis. So when you add up Frank and Mary and everybody, you know, you get the two grand from one person, the three grand from another, and then the 40,000 from, you know, Frank. Then you add up all those things and you just, as long as you know what your terms are, you, you know what your cap would be. So, you know, your cap on an individual, you know, your cap on the whole company and uh, that. Okay. So that, that whole company cap could be lower than the 40 K for everyone. No, it'll just, it, it, no. Cause it'll generally. So if you had you to use, if you had a 50 uh, person company and your total gross healthcare spent total. So that's the administration, the stop loss. And everything was, for example, a million dollars, like all in your whole, your whole, um, cost of healthcare. Your claims are probably somewhere in the $600,000 range, 700,000, your expected claims. Yeah. And, and we see that ahead of time. We, we get, we get a feel for what your expected claims are. And then what the stop loss and aggregate insurance company does is they say, well, we expect your claims to be around $600,000. So what we'll do is we'll put a cap on your claims at $700,000 and that, that's what that aggregate. So they're saying, Hey, we expect you to be in this range and uh, we'll charge you a little bit of money to say, if it goes over, you know, 700 and they always like to have a little corridor from what's expected to. Oh, gotcha. So that's what self-funding is. So it's basically just taking on the, the, um, healthcare. Oh, gotcha. Because, delivery. because that the claims that number is still low. No one assumes that everyone's going to hit 40 K. So you don't assume you're going to hit 50 times 40, right? That's, that's right. Right. But, right. So what they're saying is we can further protect you to make it more predictable. 40 times 50 is what, right? So. Right. If you, if it was $2 million, that, right. You'd go, why would I ever do that? That's crazy. So what they, the, you know, the actuaries at, you know, there's some great statistics that, well, that you can even just think about as you're noodling this around, like yeah. 5%, 5, 10% of your population probably drives 60% of your claim right. costs, right? right? So you're going to have a couple of people who are high cost claimants that, that have, you know, less gotcha. desirable things going on. And then a bunch of people who are just, you know, routine physical, take a drug, you know, maybe they right, out right. need to see a special. So that 40K deductible for everyone We'll, we'll keep it to 2 million in costs, but you know, typically you're going to pay about 1 million because it's only usually about 600 K in claims in this instance, but you're saying you could even have someone draw you a line and say max of 700, you know, it, and that just makes it much more predictable. Like it's going to be a million to million point one, but it won't be anymore. Cause we've got, we were paying all the cover. We have all the caps and the deductibles and everything is so you can kind of zero in it it makes it more predictable for your company's budget and is that kind Abs of absolutely that's 60, cool i like that 60 percent of all employees working in the united states work for self-funded employers like all large how many 60 percent 60 percent so you know in the united states you know there's tons and tons and tons of small small businesses right which make up a big part of the working age population but there's also lots of large employers and most large employers all self-fund their healthcare. they all That's cheaper right it saves money way cheaper way uh, now cheaper. how much how much would that company that say they've got a million in, in you know 50 employees million in cost how much would they be paying if they weren't self-funded on the same model, if they're generally, the plan. At, 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 you know, just in general, if they're generally. just, uh, if they're just going through the motions and just yeah. doing the most basic stuff, I mean, probably at least 10% below what they're and not doing anything high performance, right? Just, right. just generally self-funding probably 10% less than what they would pay fully insured. Right. And okay. So fully insured that company might pay million in million and 10 or you know 
1.1 or 1.2 versus one if they're doing it themselves just so you save a good 10 percent at least if, you, if you're self-funding at the very least you're hoping for that at the I, least I, right it seems like yeah. you save a lot more with this kind of thing it, it, it again it goes back to creating the conditions for success right gotcha. four four out of five years self-funded you're going to win you know, you might have a year where just claims are horrible, but you put the protections in. So the protections never, in. Yeah, it's so never it's that bad, horrible. But you knew, you knew the extent of how bad it could get. And it got there, but it didn't go any further. That's right. That's right. And the other four years, you're sitting there going, wow, I was the smartest person ever for doing this. So now for self-funded, are companies still making people contribute to it? It depends. It depends. Yeah. You know, I have a client in Braintree, Massachusetts that I met. The CEO of the company um, reached out to me and uh, said, you know, I just got a, I won't name names and I won't name insurance companies, but he said, you know, I just got like a 25% increase from my insurance company. And my broker's telling me, you know, what are you going to do? You have sick people. It is what it is. Right. And they were literally kind of just with their back against the wall. The broker just got a bonus, right? <laughs> it's nice to get a, it's nice to, if, you know, it's nice to get a 25% increase in your pay, you know, right. where's the incentive to do much when you, you know, especially if you work for a big brokerage firm and, right. and a lot of the revenue that comes into that brokerage firm is, uh, is that bonus check that comes in every April, right? You sit there yeah. and you, you know, the hush money. You start, you start, <laughs> you start messing with that formula. And I can tell you, you're not going to be the, the, the person that they're uh, smiling at, at the water cooler. Right. Right. So that particular CEO said, we got to do something. Let's try something. And we built that person, um, him, a, a custom plan. We did some really progressive things. How many employees range? He had about 80 on the medical okay. plan. Above your 50, right? Above our 50. So solidly there. Um, we're, we're kind of wrapping up the third year. He saved a million dollars in three years. Oh. So he was paying the carrier like about a million. It was going to go up to like a million two fifty. in the yeah. first year. We saved like 30% in the first year and the second year it tracked right there. So, you know, the carrier would have just increased him at 25%. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, maybe they would have felt like, all right, we got him that year. So let's just give them a nominal increase the next year of seven or eight. Like, seven or eight, look, yeah. That'll look awesome compared to the 25. And um, so it just keeps compounding. So our goal is to like, let's see if we can really move the needle downward by by self-funding. But, but self-funding, as I was saying, you need the full transparency, right? That's number one. If you can't work in, in a world of transparency, forget it, right? So we, you got to create the conditions where you have transparency. You got to be self-funded for that to happen, right? To have that transparency. Then come, then come what I call like the, the, the secret sauce of self-funding okay. to really get, to get you to be successful. Like number one, you've got to have a fee-based advisor, right? We talked about the fact fee-based advisor, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's paying me? I, I want to be paid by that client. I want to look them in the eye and every decision I make is a hundred percent in the best interest of that. Yeah. Uh, that client and your because, rate doesn't increase or decrease based on how much money you paid or maybe maybe it gets it gets better if you find me a better rate but it doesn't get doesn't get better if you pay more right so it's like a flat thing yeah so where so i work for that person so nobody is nobody is um incentivizing me in any way to do anything that's absolutely not you know and, and i think yeah. the you know, so, so I, I call it like having a fiduciary mindset. You totally you have, you have to have a fiduciary mindset for that client. You know, you, it's their money and you're spending it and you're helping them spend it and you want to have it spent in the most uh, practical way possible. That's in the best interest of Got the it. employees. And um, so fee-based advisor, that's extremely yep. important. You have to have an independent TPA, right? So in a TPA, so remember I had mentioned there's like three buckets. There's the, the bucket of the insurance to protect you from the high claims. There's the bucket of your claims themselves. But the person who's helping you as a third party to administer all this stuff, like we, we, we vet out these companies, really has to be independent and also have that fiduciary mindset, right? They're working for that employer. That employer is paying them. They're trying to um, do everything possible to take care of those employees and control the spend, right? So mm -hmm. independent company. Um, a big problem in the United States, uh, is primary care, right? Primary okay. care, the, the access to primary care is, is, um, a challenge. Like if you look at other countries in the world, they double down on their investment in primary care, right? You double oftentimes mm. 
uh, because they know that preventive things up front uh, will ultimately uh, lead to downstream positive um, outcomes, right? So let's deal with this up front. Let's invest money. Here in the United States, primary care for the most part is like the milk at the back of the store, right? They, they, the, um, let, let's get you in. And they, primary care doctors have, have very little time. The average time they probably spend with a patient is seven minutes, you know? Right. Uh, Super quick. There's a, there's a statistic that usually within 30 seconds, like a being in the, um, the uh, primary care doctor's office, you lead off with like what you're doing and you get interrupted by the doctor because they're trying to move you along. Okay. It was you know good to know that you had a great day yesterday, but like, what's your problem? Let's get it done. Cause they have no time because yeah. they have no time. They have to refer to specialists. They have to kind of feed the machines, you know, and, yeah. which is whoever owns them, a hospital, et cetera. So, um, having better primary care, super important. Um, and then there are other things, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. What are these other magic self-funding sounds like a great, not a magic trick, but it's a great, you know, silver bullet to your point. What are some of these other uh, bullets that a, a good broker would, would bring up? You know, the, one of the biggest challenges is, and I, I'll, I'll say, so we changed the, the paradigm, right? So broker is somebody who is brokering insurance, right? From carriers. So we're going to call okay. ourselves an advisor. So we're going to oh, advisor. Okay. Yep. So yep. a fee-based really advisor instead of a broker. Right. Uh, truly what's missing in our system is, is advocacy, right? Employees need advocacy, somebody who can help steer them to the highest quality care, um, and handhold them through like pretty much any type of a medical situation, right? The, the, the average person has no clue, you know, where to go for, you know, arthroscopic knee surgery, right? They just right. get pushed around. Go, oh, I, I, you know, I love Dr. Smith. Well, Dr. Smith might be a really crappy knee surgeon, right? His, yeah. her, her, his or her outcomes could be really, you know, poor quality. So advocacy and steerage and handholding is, uh, is extremely important. And that, that helps get people to the right providers. Um, yeah. You know, it's because that the incidence of misdiagnosis, the incidence of misdiagnosis and mistreatment in cancer is like 30%. So, you know, if you're an employer and you're writing checks for people's cancer, you know, diagnosis. Oh, interesting. I see how that ties in. Yeah. But do you want to, do you want to, you know, measure twice and cut once, or do you just want to let the system, you know, when you're writing the checks, you know, do you want the system as it stands to just, do you want employees going down the river without a paddle? Or do you want employees, uh, you know, being guided by experts who have that employee's best interest at heart to make sure they get the highest quality care? You know, that's interesting you bring that up because I've seen bad advocacy programs um, in some like associations. Oh, here we call this place and they'll help find you the right person. But it it was free. And so, again, you know, I don't know. I just I I haven't been very pleased with that. I've I've gone out myself and hired an independent physician just to be my advisor on a particular case, you know, for a family member. That worked out well because to your point, that was more of an advisor role than there's no brokerage going on, right? This guy's like, yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years. Let me tell you what's up. I can talk doctor. Uh, but I see now the benefit is the the company has, there's a reason to advocate. So, I mean, I, of course you want to take care of your people, but the problem is then, you know, who's getting paid, who's paying who. But I see if the reason is, hey, better medical care equals cheaper costs for you in the long run then it's a win-win. And I, I feel like with that in play, companies, there's like an incentive to do it. So it's like, there's like a, there's a moral incentive, but there's also like a, a financial incentive. So that's like a perfect combination. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and what people don't, this is a, another myth. We could start off with this. Is yeah. Another, smash it. Is, is that there, there is a misnomer that uh, if it costs more, it's better. Right. Not true. There's a, in general, there's an inverse relationship in healthcare. Oftentimes the lower cost stuff actually is better quality, right? Very simply put a really, really great surgeon who does, you know, 10 hips a day is able to get somebody in and out of the operating theater quickly, efficiently, probably with a lower infection rate because they're just really darn good at doing hips, right? So who do you want to go to the doctor who does, you know, two hips a week because he's a general or she's a general orthopedic, you know, they do a shoulder, a knee and I, oh, we do a lot, you know, you you want the hip machine is what you want. You want the machine, you know, uh, I I had a hip replacement done. I'm a younger guy, but I had, yeah, I was younger and I, you know, 
And I had it done at, um, give a plug for the New England Baptist. Okay. They are a machine. They are an orthopedic machine. They know what they're doing. My surgeon did probably two or three hips before mine and probably three or four after mine. Well, that's what you want, right? He's in the stride, right? You don't want to be the first one of the day. You want to be right in the middle where he's like feeling good. You won't be the last one either, but right, put me right in the middle. It, it won't even matter. I, I Before, <laughs> when I had my hip replaced, it was a little before I knew all that I know now. And right. uh, so, you know, just we'll call it pure luck. Uh, he's like, he happens to be probably arguably you know, the number one or number two hip surgeon in the state of Massachusetts, probably in New England. Uh, his data is unbelievable, the quality data that comes out. So I didn't know that. I was I was referred to him by somebody who I really trusted who was in the know. Uh, so it just happened. But the, when you shake this man's hand, you literally feel like you're shaking the hand of a mason or a brick, you know, a bricklayer, somebody who's got these big, his, these big hands, powerful, rough, because that's all he does. He works with his hands all day long, you know, getting hips in and getting hips out really efficiently. So quality is important. And, um, and when he's able to effectively produce that level of quality that often, right, he's able to lower the cost, right? He's not in the operating room as much. So you want your employee to go to that doctor for the hip replacement, you know, and you want to find the equivalent one for the knee, you know, that particular hospital is also very aggressive in their pricing. So would you rather go to a doctor at some local hospital, you know, that might have a great parking lot and it might have a good cafeteria and be real convenient to the house, but that surgeon's really not doing those number of hips. Or do you want your employee that, and the cost is say $30,000 for that hip replacement, or do you want him to go to the one who does 10 a day, four days a week, and the cost is $20,000. But employers don't, employers have not kind of got involved with that. And not that they have to get too deeply involved. They just have to put the, the systems in place that take care of these things right. so that that's, that will, that will translate to value. So advocacy to quality is critically important. Pharmacy, pharmacy strategy. So 25% of healthcare claim costs the pharmacy. And, um, uh, if there's one dirty area in the healthcare space, it's pharmacy. I mean, you can't pick up the newspaper or, or you know, look in social media on anything and, there's always some type of a discussion going on about the, the, the high cost of prescription drugs. So pharma, man, it's crazy. It's crazy. So you know what? These companies, their goal is to make is they're publicly traded companies. Their yeah. their their goal is to make as much money as they can for their shareholders. They're doing their job, right? They're really right. smart people who work at these companies who figure out how to how to extract money from employers, right? So you've got to have some kind of a strategy where you where you are pushing back on that. Um, yeah. And I, I think employees are, you, you got to have, you, you mentioned it before, like a little bit, you know, advocacy, you've got to have incentives in, in the, in the model so that employees want to pull on the rope in the same direction mm -hmm. as the employers pull on the rope. So maybe you say, Hey, you, we're going to do this kind of cool stuff, but, um, and we know it's a little different than what you were experiencing before, or you've had another employer, or even before we made the change. So why don't we just say, if you take the advice, which is advice in your best interest, we believe to do this, go here, do that. We'll just make it free. It'll be no cost, right? So that's a win-win. If you want to do what you've always done, go down that river without the paddle, go get the knee done from a B or C quality doctor, you know, that's your prerogative, but, but right. you're going to pay, you're going to pay. So the deductible will apply or something like that. Right. So, um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a combination really, Casey, of just pulling together a lot of different components into a package that, uh, operates, uh, you know, efficiently and runs and, um, yeah. long, it, it's, it's probably nothing too different than the, the kind of the concept of like, if you want good results, you got to put in some effort and time, right? It's like going to the gym. It's like getting off the couch, right? We can all sit on the couch and click through channels, but, uh. Yeah. And that's easy. That's like just the status quo, right? That's yeah. kind of the, the, the default choice. Oh, let's just right. relax or do that. So if you want better results, uh, as an employer, first of all, you have to know that there are options that exist that you should be exploring. Right. right? And, and so that's a mindset thing, right? Having knowledge. Have the right mindset. Yeah. W what about our, our friend sub 50? Sounds like 50 is that sweet spot for getting 
some self-funding going on and some other things. Any, any tips and tricks for the, the folks that haven't got to that point yet and they're not ready for self-funding? You know, um, that's a great question. The, I, I, I think, first of all, some of the models, uh, the, the thing that, the thing that um, precludes some of the below 50 to some extent is that stop loss component, that high deductible, you know, that $40,000 plus. You see, so if you're a company with 20 or 30 people, give or take, um, you would probably feel more comfortable with a $20,000 deductible, right? So, right. so the, the marketplace really isn't that mature on those. There are, there are vendors out there, uh, but as an advisor, you know, my concern, I like to sleep at night and I know most HR people and CEOs like to sleep at night. So I haven't really particularly seen vehicles that are amazing below 50. There are some, but, but I think the smaller employer, if they're not going to ever get to the over 50, um, there are still things they can do. There are some insurance companies, uh, they're, 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 um, maybe not the brands that you're ultimately seeing day in and day out here, but there are some that have some strategies where they will, um, get into kind of like an agreement where they'll say, Hey, we will show you your claims data. So there's some little level of transparency that you didn't maybe have before, or they'll say, Hey, if you're running so fantastically well, we'll actually give you back money. Right. We'll say, we'll, 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 um, take that claim bucket. And if it's running performing better than we expected, we'll give you like effectively a, a surplus refund. So, so there are some, there are some opportunities and we have a lot of clients that were kind of in the traditional HMO, you just pay it and take your eight to 10% increase year after year. And we've moved them to some of these more, you know, progressive models and they've, they've been happy. It's not, it's the system is rigged, right? So only when you get larger, can you really have that full opportunity to spread your wings, so to speak. And what about, what about like group buying with like a PEO? Yeah, that, that, you know, think about, so as we started talking in the beginning, right, the idea of full transparency, all these component things that we're talking about. Well, if the PEO ultimately is just using an insurance company as the mechanism behind, you know, the PEO, right, to to uh, fund the healthcare plan, right, manage and fund the healthcare plan, you're, you're oftentimes you're right back in the right back in the same boat as you were if you were, you know, fully insured with your with your carrier. So, you know, if you just you know pick on any insurance company you know, if you're just buying fully insured from them as an employer and then if you're getting that same product through the peo you're effectively getting the same thing could there be some administrative reduction in um efficiency yeah but when you when you look at it the big bucket is claims so let's just i'm just going to pick on xyz insurance company right xyz insurance yeah. company the big buckets claim so if you're directly contracting with them, the claims don't go down when you're in the PEO. The only thing that goes down when you're in the PEO might be uh, some administrative costs. So you, you might see some small, small reduction in, in 2%, 5%, 3%, <laughs> but you don't have any of the trends. So not really a silver bullet as far as I can see. Interesting. Interesting. So gotta, gotta grow that size a bigger part of things um for the moment yeah. for the moment right mm -hmm. some of these some of these models i think uh will move downstream i think the the, the biggest movers and shakers are our small employers right and when i say small they're the companies with 50 to 250 50 to 500 employees right they're, they're not so big that uh they they have people spread out all over the place and and they feel like it, the change is going to be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. The smaller ones in that 50 to 500 market typically are single site, multi-site, but re pretty regional. And, um, and they, they have good ability to communicate with their employees and to share, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. We want you to, you know, be part of this. And when you ask yourself, well, as a comp, as a CEO or a leader of a company, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? I mean, it is 
usually there's three reasons. Like one, I want to take better care of my people. Like if I can, if I can do something to help steer them to higher quality healthcare or get them better health care, you know, I want to do that. If I can do something to help protect their paycheck. Right. I mean, if you're a, if you're a manufacturer in the state of Massachusetts and you have hourly employees earning $25 an hour, there's no money in their paycheck for another health insurance increase. There, there's no money right. for a deductible increase. At a, at a $2,000 deductible, if you're earning $25 an hour, you're functionally uninsured, right? They, they don't, there's, no, there's no bandwidth in their income to spend on that deductible, right? right. So that makes sense. protect their health, protect their paycheck, and, and really long-term protect the company's bottom line. Sure. I, I mean, we, we move from our people. People are the most important part of the company. So it's, you gotta, you gotta take care of people for sure. So I love to sh shift gears here. I mean, this is fantastic. I love to just, you know, quick question for you. Like where, where do you go to learn things? Do you, do you have any favorite books, any podcasts, any things that uh, you've been uh, reading lately? Uh, that's a great question, Casey. Uh, well, I would full of great questions today. <laughs> you are Top full of great questions. Time. Well, let's, I can take this one as a two-parter actually. So yeah. I would say if, if people are listening and they have any interest in it at all with this and they want to learn a little more, um, the guy who founded and started uh, the Health Rosetta organization, his name is Dave Chase. And he wrote a book called The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, right? And, and Dave argues, it's his thesis in the book is that, you know, basically countries, uh, you know, we in the United States have gone to war you know, for, for things that are less than, you know, what's going on with healthcare, right? And this, this kind of stagnation of the middle class's income, really a lot of the money, people have been getting raises, but a lot of those raises have been e eaten up by healthcare costs. Interesting. Right? So, so Dave's book really is a phenomenal, relatively short read about just healthcare, all the things that I'm talking about and really how to rethink this and get your, get get the juices flowing so you can you know do these things at your organization. So I would say that's just a great read. I'd highly recommend it. And it was pivotal, pivotal in helping me get traction to, to go get my master's degree in healthcare finance. Right. I read the book. I was like, I want to do this stuff. This is beyond cool. It's taking care of people. It, it fits with my business model already. But so can't, I can't talk enough about that book. Um, uh, I would say if I'm, what am I reading right now? I'm reading a book called, uh, no ego, no ego, and wow. which is, uh, another one, a client of mine recommended he's a leader of a company and he's, we were having lunch and he said, have you heard of this book? No ego. And I said, no. And he goes, it's so cool. And it, it fits a little bit and I'll share what the premise of it, because it, maybe it'll, you know, somebody will say, yeah, let's do it. You know, we all, and I, this could be controversial. So oh, yeah, I'm let's look. get after it. <laughs> so you Boston, let's go. The, the concept and it may be controversial in my mindset. Like, so I'm, okay. I do employee benefits, right. And we're always yeah. like, Hey, what can we do to take care of all these people? And what can we do? Like, you know, we want to do, uh, programs to improve employees well-being, And we want to a million different ways. They're always like, how can we take care of our employees? And, um, to some extent that what the book talks about, which is again, very interesting is that, look, um, it's like the 80, 20 rule though. 20% of those people generate 80% of the results for your business, right? And, yeah. and Cy Wakeman, the woman who's the author, makes somewhat the argument, and I, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting it, that you know, this idea of, of listening to every squeaky wheel might not be in the best interest of your business. Um, mm -hmm. And what you really want to focus on and figure out is who is the 20% that generate 80% of your your um, productivity, revenue, opportunities, thought leadership, right? And really focus in on like doing, you know, things for them first. And then secondarily, the other 80% who only generate 20%, not discounting them completely because some of those people could move to that 20% bucket, you know, from the 80 to 20 as right. But but not letting the tail wag the dog as much. And I think it's a real, again, I'm halfway through the book, so I haven't gotten to the last chapters, but I think it's a really interesting concept. And I think the no ego part that she's talking about, uh, really talks about accountability, which is a big challenge, right? Every, everybody comes into work and wastes a lot of time with stories and it's about their ego. And, um, 
she's basically saying like the, the way leaders that need to start thinking about things in today's um environment is and especially i think too where you have everybody uh working remotely is you got to get back to accountability right what, yeah. what are you what are you really accountable for are you in are you out uh so right pretty interesting book came from a really smart person that uh, i respect so maybe okay, something i love that people love that well next question really is who are you who are you done a master's and 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 benefits and finance med medical benefits finance take me back in time little andrew days who is this kid did he know he was going to be fascinated by this topic at an early age what was it like growing up you where where'd you grow up i grew up in uh, dartmouth massachusetts so i'm, uh, I'm oh, yeah. that's down on the south coast uh I, you know that's a great question too i would say my dad uh ended up in business but in college was pre-med so we always kind of had this fascination proclivity towards anything medicine right and we were yeah, little, you know, yeah. what's this thing that he's putting on our chest well that's a stethoscope and who how many dads have stethoscope right? <laughs> and, and he always so he, he was into it and i think that that uh was pretty interesting and then as a little kid and when i was about 10 years old i came down with this thing called kawasaki syndrome oh. <laughs> you can google it i don't know if you ever heard of it i, I have like, have you heard of it yeah it's a i, I don't rare, know what it, what it is it's like a virus um wow it's a virus. It's pretty rare. It usually happens in younger children and you, you just you get like scarlet fever and you have a fever. I had a fever over a hundred for, for over a month. Um, I remember nice. I was, and I, you know, it was a good weight. I lost like 30 or 40 pounds. <laughs> and you, you, yeah, I mean, do you recommend that it for other people? No, I would recommend They don't even know how you catch it. Uh, it was just right. random, random, but I think that having that and then getting exposed to a lot of really great specialists and all the, you know, what can happen to, to kids who get Kawasaki syndrome because of that high fever, they can have aneurysms in their heart. So there's a lot that goes on. You have to follow up and make sure. Uh, so fortunately, uh, you know, that didn't happen to me, but just being sick and having that dead. And I think it just got my interest going in the medical world, right? Kind of always fascinated yeah. about it. And, you know, after call, I was an English major in college. So that, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't take the biochemistry route or anything like that. And so when I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I did become an insurance broker <laughs> just randomly. And I sold healthcare, health insurance, right? Just the status quo stuff for, for a long time. And it really was, you know, my lack of, um, probably two things. My, 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 I didn't feel empowered that I could actually do much to help my clients with the status quo models that are out there. So when I'm handing out a 15% increase and the only thing that I can do is say, well, you could raise your deductible a little bit, or you could, um, increase what the employees pay out of their paycheck. That, that just wasn't really cutting it for me. So in comes, uh, the health Rosetta, Dave Chase, the, the inspiration. And, uh, yeah. the next thing, you know, you know, um, way into it so way into it yeah that's cool man that because you used to be on the other side of the equation you know and you realize my i'm so limited my options and and the the better i am to try to help these companies out the less money i make it's like what is that right so well yeah i mean we have you know? I, it, it, we we still you know companies will come to us we meet employers all the time and they say well, we love what you're talking about we love mm -hmm. um we're not ready to do it yet we're, you know, right. but, but we want you to be our broker, but we want to transition you to kind of our advice. So we want a relationship with you. We want the thought leadership. We want, you know, we want you on our team. We're not just ready to do it quite yet, but how do you help us get there? Help us think about this, help us strategize. And, and that's, that's the most exciting, right? Cause they're, yeah. they're showing interest and, uh, and they're on the journey and it's, um, it's really fulfilling. Oh, I love that the, you get that fulfillment. You can tell, I mean, lights you up like a Christmas tree, right? Talking about it. So, so my next question for you is a little bit of hypothetical question because you see, I may or may not have a time machine up here in New Hampshire. And let's say you come visit, we get some beers and some lobster and then we use the time machine, right? But it's a particular time machine and it goes back in time to you a few days after the undergrad. I, where did you get that in? I don't know. I'm not even sure. I know you did the, healthcare for the master. I was an English major at Bates college up in Lewiston, Maine. English major. Oh. Okay. So you get to go meet yourself after that English major 
uh, three or four days after in case you needed to hydrate afterward. So you get to go meet yourself and you can tell yourself anything you want and it won't mess up your space time continuum. I promise. Um, Cause I'm a time Lord. I can control these things. So what, what would you tell yourself? What kind of things would you say? I would say, well, first of all, I say, don't eat that cupcake. Yeah. <laughs> don't eat that cupcake because Which cupcake? Man, it's just, uh, or the five cupcakes, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Focus, focus on your health, you know, stay on top of it. Uh, you know, that that's always been a big thing. Cause I think, you know, the healthier you are, the more uh, the ability, the, the more you have the ability to be productive, right? If you feel great and your health's great, then you can be productive. So I, I would jokingly, I just said, don't eat the cupcake because I love sweets and that, you know, those are things that long-term um, aren't necessarily great for your health. But, but I would say going back, um, take risk, you know, take risk, uh, listen to smart people, I, I was at a, so not too long, I'll give, I'll give credit where credit's due. I was at a Bates kind of networking function and uh, some alumni who were pretty successful kind of, you know, shared thoughts. And there was a guy named Bruce Stengel, who uh, was an uh, older alumni, had a very successful company in Boston. And I remember him sitting, um, talking to a bunch of us graduates and we're all, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, we're all, you know, recent grads looking for that, you know, advice. And we're all starting our careers. And I remember, yeah. him, I remember him saying like, he goes, if I can give you one piece of advice is uh, be a student of business, be a student. Don't give up learning, continuously push yourself to learn, continuously push yourself to grow and read, 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 just, you know, figure out kind of what you, what you like and just dig in and dig in and dig in more. And, and um, for a long term, for a long time, I did that. And then I kind of took my foot off the, off the gas. And I just was like, you know, I mean, making a good living in that rig system, uh, I used to say, well, this is gonna, this, I can make this to the finish line. Right. I can make this to the, to the I, probably yeah. not as fulfilling, right? Not as fulfilling. Not as fulfilling. And yeah. exactly. I, I said to myself, you know what? I don't really want to be a 65 year old guy coming into some company going, you know, oh, you're getting a 15% increase, uh, you know, and my skill set was like, all right, well, you should raise the deductible or, you know what, right. have you thought about charging the employees a little more? Uh, I, I, I had, um, enough knowledge to know that, uh, there is a better way. And it's just a matter of tapping into that, right. Tapping into that, that vein, right. That's got that really great energy and, and knowledge. And so he, he was right. And I think, so if I, you know, looking back, if I, if I were going to give myself that advice, I'd be like, keep pushing, don't ever stop. Keep trying to get better, keep trying to grow. Even if it hurts, do it because you're going to, you're going to be able to add more value for people around you, for your, your, your fulfillment for yourself. So yeah have a growth mindset have a growth mindset growth mindset that's another fantastic book i mean you know uh i probably i was introduced to that book probably three or four years ago called um i think it's just called mindset by a woman who's uh, her name is carolyn dweck she's a phd carolyn dweck and it's just called mindset and it for for leaders of companies, which I'm going to guess is mostly the audience. Oh yeah. You're, you're, well, you're a leader and you deal with people and your ability to kind of think of and analyze the mindsets of people around you, your own mindset, you know, and do you have a fixed mindset or do you have a growth mindset? And she kind of really lays it out very, very well based on a lot of science in her book mindset. And you can just sit there and go, okay, I can see how my mindset's fixed and I really, it's holding me back. Or I could see how th that person has a really fixed mindset and I need to address things differently to make them see opportunities so wow. they can maybe get out. Yeah. So, so I would say no ego, good book, the 80, 20 rule uh, and that uh, mindset by Carolyn Dweck are just. Oh yeah. I just, I even just looked up out the, to the ego when i looked up uh carolyn's book eight dollars on amazon like come to papa placing my order right now i, oh, I get it t tomorrow for free all right free shipping 
done. Um, yeah, it is all about, you know, where your mind's at, right? If your mind's in the wrong spot, like, yeah, I, I went hiking the other day and prior to that, my mind was in the wrong spot and, and I knew it, but I couldn't get myself out of it other than to go hiking with a friend. And then after that, you know, after like that workout, right. Or just, we were talking a little bit earlier, you get that little something and it gets the cobwebs off the, you know, the, the crust off the the old bread. I don't know what the metaphor is, but it just, it kind of gets you fresh again and ready to attack, you know? You can't, exercise is so critical. There's a statistic that uh, like all the antidepressant drugs out there are like 51% effective, right? When you, uh, um, when massive tests and exercise, like when, you know, the, the, the benefit of it is like 50%. So it's like 1% less than like the you know the most expensive antidepressants uh you know as far as like the impact on the on the human you know biology so um you know getting out and moving is so positive it's so many yeah and you can take the exercise pill as much as you'd like it's it's there yeah Funny. just don't eat the cupcake after can you overdose in the exercise not really i mean you can overdo it and your body will let you know but you know, it's not like you have to take only one pill every eight, 12 hours or something, you know, it's like, go for it. And then the benefit is then you can eat the cupcake because you, you just burned 3000 calories on that hike. No, it's all about balance. I'm joking. Uh, I'm on, can you, I'm on a diet. So, so oh, no, I, no, I hear you, man. Don't eat the cupcake, man. For sure. Yeah. For sure. It's, it's tough when it's a, like a business event and they have like 30 cupcakes uh-huh. out there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Yeah. I was at a, I was at a company yesterday and, uh, they bake food, baked goods. And I remember opening the door to the plant and I just stuck my head in there and I go, oh my God, this is just Nirvana, you know, Nirvana, I'm sure. Oh my God. You, you, the employees themselves are probably over it, but you know, you visiting and smelling that. Yeah. I think that I'd be a hard pass. I, I can't work with you guys. You guys are going to bring me down the wrong path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um. Movement is key. So whatever, you know, yeah. the, on the healthcare side, and I guess just to, to bring it all full circle, right. Is it, the, the, the person who doesn't have any medical issues and, and is healthy, you know, that, that that's the best, right. Cause they're, right. they're healthy. They're not. So, you know, how do you, how can you set up the conditions so that you reduce the risk for cancer that you reduce the risk for orthopedic problems that you reduce the risk for um you know all kinds of disease right and i think that the theme a lot of it goes back to you know what you eat and how you move and your stress level and all that but it's highly complex and that and that a lot of employers really go down the wrong path when they say hey we're going to have a biggest loser contest or we're going to do this thing and it's misguided oftentimes um there there is really not a lot of data that shows that uh companies spending money on the way they have in the past on wellness things you know leads to reduced healthcare costs it's 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 a little more complex than that and you have the yeah social determinants of health and probably you know in the uk uh, when they want to reduce healthcare costs, so when they try to reduce healthcare costs, they will actually try to stimulate job growth huh. to reduce healthcare costs. And you say, well, how is that? Well, the reason is, is that when people are working, they're, they are active, um, they psychologically feel better, and they have income, they have money, right? So the quality of food improves, the ability for them maybe to move their life ahead improves, right? So yeah. So, so at, you know, there are opportunities for a lot of things. So it's, you know, unfortunately, and this is where there's a lot of disparity in our country where, you know, the, the poor, their health is worse, you know, and the rich, their health is better. They have access to care. They have access to uh, better food and better water and, and less toxins and things like that. So employers really have to think about that and you know you can see why running the biggest loser contest is is, is probably not gonna drive too much healthcare. but there are other ways that employers can think about that to help their people and that's the goal that is the goal man that is so the goal um wow wow uh, you know one time we did a um a fit thing like we did in the chapter 
we did uh we got everyone fitbits and then we were able to track like steps and we just had this like fun thing of chest fit you know how you know, how many steps can you get in and there were competitions to see you know who could get the most steps in and stuff like that and what was interesting is uh we had this one grandmother who was a bookkeeper and she was the she was the the sleeper the the, the lurker or something because you wouldn't guess her like i'd always ask people coming into the company who do you think won our fitness program and it was actually this this gal she's amazing and you know i would be pretty up there because i was doing triathlons at the time and then i'm like oh i'm winning in my own contest this is terrible but whatever um and then i'd go to bed and then that night you know, maybe 10, 10 p.m. She would see that she's not winning. She'd walk around her house like 50 times and she'd sneak in there and win it the last minute. And I was always so happy though. I was so, <laughs> it was such a fun story. She would inspire everyone else to really move. And, but you're right, getting them started moving is one thing, but then a- addressing the complexity of why you're off balance in the first place is like a bigger something more to it it's a more personal exploration you have to take but at least you can get people moving but then hopefully they can take the momentum and run with it yeah the problem the problem is that most of the time and i don't i can't remember the scientific or the the term for this but most of the time the people who start moving when you put those programs in place are the people who are already moving already right so the the couch potatoes you don't get them you know, right. So and there's a word for that. So like of your population, if 30% of that, you put a program in place of 30% who are already moving, are the first ones to sign up. They're the ones getting the reward. So you didn't really accomplish anything. Um, and an interesting thing, I remember reading about Fitbit, because uh, I, like everybody else, bought one and started like trying to track my 10,000 steps. Um, I think there's there's science and data that shows that when you start wearing a Fitbit, a lot of times you actually gain weight because uh, people who now uh, did their 10,000 steps are sitting there going, well, I got all my exercise and they will eat the extra cupcake because they, they, the they, they burnt it off. Because you did the 10. And what happens is that the net effect is that they, they actually didn't burn as many calories as they thought they... So you might not get the weight loss because you might overeat because of the Fitbit, but you are getting movement, which you're getting definitely... Movement. Yeah, so yeah. there's... It's, so a good it's all point. complex. It's all complex. It's a good point because people don't realize just how much they can pack into a cupcake these days. Like, I don't know if you've looked at even just like a donut, right? Had like a Dunkin' Donuts donut. And you're like, wait a minute. I could go for a 15 minute run and I could completely undo it by eating this donut, right? <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't make any sense, but it, it's not on, it's not on level with it with with reality because yes you could literally undo that by eating that extra or eat that cake and now you your your deficit is completely wiped out it's really bizarre you know with just all the calories packed in to those food groups right right and so you know all this thinking and talking and complexity you know that's what what i love yeah. That's and having that dialogue and being that what I just called a servant leader to that employer, right? Like it would the knowledge we have about certain things and and how we're tapped into our health Rosetta, you know, ecosystem of really smart people all around the country doing stuff, you know, bringing back those concepts that like you know what somebody's trying to sell you something here, but here's the real data behind it. It just doesn't. It's not going to add value, right? It's at the, right. at the very least, it could have. There's a thing called iatrogenesis and iatrogenesis is like where you actually do something and you do harm to people, right? We don't want any iatrogenesis. We want to have, you know, things that are proven to be positive. So employers, a small employer, they are overwhelmed with laws and rules and the great resignation and so many things that they're dealing with, right? The challenge just becomes like, all right, what can we do that will have a positive impact that we know um, takes care of our people and potentially can control costs? And they're not, they might not have the, the, the bandwidth to impact the social determinants of health or change people's behavior. That just might be too much. So at the very least, the lowest hanging fruit on the tree is getting into these kind of a self-funded platform, getting into a model where there's advocacy and transparency and the right people in the box so that 
at least they have half a chance to be successful, you know, over the long term. And, and that's what we're about. And I'm excited to talk about that with people. So, and, and hopefully, you know, people in EO, if they have a smaller company, we can start a relationship with them when they're small and build that level of trust. So when they get to be a little bigger, that, uh, you know, um, good things can, you know, can happen. Right. So true, man. Well, dude, this has been fantastic. Uh, where can people connect with you? If they want to reach out um, professionally, socially, all those things, uh, connect with you, your company, talk about getting an advisor versus a broker, all those kind of things. Uh, you know, the easiest probably way for somebody to reach out to talk to me is to email me. So a roberts at amrbenefits.com. Okay. A Roberts at, and uh, my website, amrbenefits.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Andy Roberts. Um, my mobile, I'm, I, I text most of my clients. I text a lot because we talk a lot. Um, 781-799-0653. That's the mobile number. Text me and say, Hey, want to chat? You know, I feel like, uh, I'm swimming in a pool of jello. And, uh, yeah. and I just don't, I don't, how, you know, I know that feeling. What, and, uh, and oftentimes, uh, that can lead to cool things, you know, we don't, we want to help and we want to add value. Yeah. So if we're not helping and we're not adding value, then, then it doesn't make sense to, to do anything. Awesome, man. Well, that's some great ways to contact you right there. And you know what, if people, if people enjoyed this conversation and, and they, they got a sense for who you are and the fact that you actually care and your sense of fulfillment is from helping these companies help their employees, then they should definitely reach out and contact you. Um, with that, man, thank you so much for being on here. I learned so much. There's things I'm only slightly embarrassed to not know about, and I'm glad that I learned about them here and I hope everyone else did too. Uh, but the idea of self-funding and, and talking about the idea of the brokers versus the advisors and just where all the costs go, the claims, the admin costs, and the fact that there's insurances to help cap those things so that it doesn't just run out of out of control. Man, I learned so much. And I really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you for having me, Casey. It's a pleasure. And uh, I hope it added some value for you and for the listeners uh, alike. Thank Absolutely, you. man. It really did. And, and for those listeners, if you learned something, and I freaking know you did because I literally have two pages of notes front and back over here then share this episode with someone else. That's how you can be a thought leader. And maybe you can have an impact on, who knows? You share this with another CEO that you know, and they have some employees that really could benefit from just being taken care of the right way. Um, and maybe you can connect those dots just by sharing this episode. So anyhow, share this thing, get it out there. And with that, Andrew, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everybody, this has been another exciting episode of Leadership in Action. We will see you all next time. Leadership in Action is sponsored by the Boston chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. As the world's only peer-to-peer -peer network exclusively for entrepreneurs, EO helps transform the lives of those who transform the world.